Well, good morning, Oak Grove Church. Good to see all of you here this morning. And for those of you that are checking in on live stream, we're thrilled that you're here. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, for walking us through just uh, remembering the Lord Jesus this morning, the very person who defines the very nature of who we are. And uh, it's always good to pause in the hectic pace of life and to reorient your spiritual compass to get in upon who we really live for. Uh, before we begin, I'm just going to invite you to bow with me and we'll pray before we jump into the text this morning. Gracious Father, thank you for your profound mercy towards us, that this undeserved generosity of yours has provided everything that is both necessary and sufficient for us to discover life in Christ and to live godly. Father, we know our own inability and our own weakness, and yet we also know your complete sufficiency that we really do need to live a life with the anticipation that you've provided everything we need to live a life that honors and glorifies you. We pray that you will continue to instruct our hearts and allow us to live by the power of your energizing spirit who, uh, Father, is constantly at work to transform us into the image of your Son. We live in a world that desperately needs to see the hope of the gospel and pray that that would be that same gospel would shape and influence and direct our hearts and minds on a daily basis. We thank you for our time that we can be together as in community and be part of this gathering that becomes one small part of our whole life as a community of faith, that you will continue to use these times to encourage and stimulate us to living a life of hope and encouragement and grace in the life and the world that we live in. And for this, as we continue to step into the scriptures, we ask that your spirit will continue to be our instructor, the one that will continue to reveal the truth of your word, and we ask for your provision this morning in Christ's name, amen. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning, and we are taking on probably the one text that I hate dealing with in all of life, because Paul has uh, Dennis, the, the same dubious thing he does in a lot of texts is he gives us enough information to just drive you nuts if you really want to study it. Uh, he weaves into this particular text one that is used to talk about the whole nature of role of women and men in the church and how that looks. There's so much culture and uh, creation and context in this thing that it's really hard to sort through uh, all the things that he's talked about. So we're gonna try to camp through some of the things that are important out of this text and try to not get too caught in the weeds of other things that we could explore. But it becomes a stepping stone to further texts that we're gonna look at next week in relationship to marriage and headship and submission there in the next couple of weeks and try to at least become a little bit more familiar with the nature of what he's talking about. Wanna begin by reading the text in 1 Corinthians and uh, just uh, beginning to sort of expose ourselves to his thoughts as uh, challenging as they are, where he says this, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband. Let me pause there for a moment. The text literally reads, the head of a wife is the man. Uh, the, it's the same terminology, the terminology that's used in Ephesians 5, exactly the same words. Context usually determines whether you're talking about a woman and a man or whether it's a wife and a husband, which makes this especially difficult because it really isn't talking about marriage per se, it's talking about the gathering of the community. 
So in some of your versions, you'll see that a woman is, or a wife is to be submissive, or, or uh, the head of a wife is, the, is her husband. Others are going to say that the head of a woman is a man. So that's, there's a difference in terms of how that's written out. Uh, we won't get stuck there, but that's, I just want to let you know that if you're reading a Bible that doesn't have it quite the same way, that's the reason. The head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, and every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife or a woman will not cover her head, then she should, be, uh, should cut her hair short or cut it off. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head, for a man ought not to cover his head, since she, he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For the man was not made from woman, but woman from man, neither was the man created for woman, but the woman for man. That is why a wife or a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, the woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, for as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Now, Paul couldn't make this any more complicated. He's got angels in there, he's got head coverings, he's got cultural stuff, he's got, for some strange reason, puts in there this idea that the head of Christ is God, and it really creates sort of a very convoluted, difficult text to deal with, uh, because we have to try to figure out a number of different things, and obviously a whole bunch of questions comes to mind. What is he talking about when he talks about headship in this particular context? And we'll explore that a little bit. Uh, what's the whole nature of praying and prophesying? And there's some things that obviously we need to reaffirm, is that there's an assumption here that as the man can pray and prophesy, so women can pray and prophesy. So if you walk out with nothing else this morning, there seems to be in this new community uh, equal opportunity and freedom and privilege for both men and women to participate in public worship. And if I was smart, I'd probably say, end of message, let's close in prayer and we'll go home. <laughs> However, I'm not that smart, so we're going to weed through it anyway. <laughs> but I, again, what we need to know, this is why in our context that there's really no problem with the idea of women leading worship and participating, reading the scriptures, all those kinds of things that we uh, do is not just arbitrary, it's not just because of skills and competence, but there's a sense of freedom that this new community gives to those even back then, and I'll try to paint the context for you so you understand how significant it was, but it gives them that freedom. Uh, what's the nature and the purpose of the head coverings? Well, there's a, an element there that seems to be very culturally ingrained, and you'll see that as I read some of the things for you in terms of their particular context. Uh, but the, one of the most confusing things is when he comes back and says a woman ought to have a sign of authority, or we'll look at it quite literally, it says that a woman ought to have authority on her head or on account of her head, and which just completely messes the whole conversation up because you would expect him to say that she should simply have a covering or be uh, subject to her head, and he doesn't say that. So then the question is, all right, what are you getting at? What are you trying to say? And like normal Pauline scripture, uh, there's probably a number of things that are going on that he just doesn't bother explaining to us. Uh, obviously, there's things to deal with. I remember growing up that my parents 
went to the United Church of Canada. I grew up in Calgary, Alberta. For those of you that don't know my background, both Grant and I are Canadians. He lived on one end and I lived at the other end and we're still friends. Um, we, uh, we, uh, it, it would be a different discussion. Uh, probably the biggest tension we had up there was probably English-speaking Canadians and French-speaking Canadians uh, where they decided at one point they were gonna secede from the whole nation and do their own thing and there's a lot of English-speaking Canadians that were disappointed that didn't pass, but you know, you get, so we have our stuff that's going on. But my mom and dad went to United Church of Canada. It wasn't an evangelical, gospel-centered church, it was moralism, that it was about doing good works and being a nice person. I remember discussing with my dad the whole nature of the Bible and all that he felt that it was is that the Bible was a moral code for society and culture, so when uh, the, the morality of the culture started to slip, my dad often would say, I think he ought to take those people out onto an island and just shoot them all. Um, it didn't sound very spiritual, but that was kind of the moral code that he lived with. My mom became a Christian after they were married. It's always a bizarre thing and almost an impossible thing for me when uh, my mom talks about that she used to smoke, which just like sounds completely contradictory to the very image that I have in terms of who my mom is. Not that it's the end of the world, but you know, as you grow older as kids, I remember the first time that uh, we went to a wedding and I saw my dad dancing like a crazy person on the, kind of like, who in the world is that? Like, that seems so out of character from the dad at home and the disciplinarian and you know, the teacher and that kind of stuff that I, I thought at times he was drunk when I saw it, but you know, he wasn't, but that was, uh, there's all kinds of strange images you grow, get when you grow up in an environment and don't see everything that's going on. But the key in our family is that my mom was clearly the spiritual anchor in our home. She was the one that helped us come to Christ. She was the one who framed the spirituality in our, in our family. My dad uh, was not overly relational, uh, he went and coached all our steams and all those things, but spiritually there was nothing there for my dad other than that we went to church and it was an activity that we did. So the spiritual framework, the spiritual cornerstone was my mom and we are where we are today because of what my mom did. Uh, the blueprint that we're looking at today might be considered more of, of a spiritual blueprint of an ideal situation in terms of what we're looking at, but you and I both know that we rummage around in a world that are very where very little is ideal, that there's all kinds of exceptions to the process and there's all kinds of extenuating circumstances that we have to deal with. Back in these particular times, the struggle for equality was one of those things that we would say is less than ideal. In fact, I wanna read you a few quotes that come from um, Jerusalem in the time of, of Jesus. It's an old book, but he captures, Jeremiah captures some of the things that women had to deal with in this particular culture. For instance, in the Eastern world, women take no part in public life. This was true of Judaism in the time of Jesus in all cases where Jewish families faithfully observed the law. So there was a certain segment of Judaism that was very strict in terms of how women participated. When the women of the hosts, or a Jewish of Jerusalem, left her house, her face was hidden by an arrangement of two head veils a headband on her forehead with bands to the chin and a hairnet of ribbons and knots so that her features could not be recognized. Uh, I read a story out of his resources that talked about a high priest who had to go through the process of vetting whether a woman had committed adultery or not 
and uh, there was, the woman was presented to her, they went through the whole process, I don't know exactly what the outcome was, but her veils made her, disguised her to such an extent that he didn't realize that he was dealing with his mother who was accused of adultery. And so the idea of these veils literally disguise the, the appearance of a woman so that not even her own family at times could recognize it. So, and there was two of them. As you move on, there's things that they said. From a religious point of view, uh, especially with regard to the Torah, a woman was inferior to the man. She was subject to all kinds of prohibitions of the Torah and to the whole force of civil and penal legislation, including the penalty of death. On the other hand, the benefit that women have is that she didn't have any of the responsibilities of what the Torah often required. For instance, attending any of the festivals like Passover, um, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem and Pentecost, she was not obligated or required to have to attend or participate in any of those kinds of activities. So even the idea that, uh, of being taught the Torah was not an obligation that she had to fulfill. However, those kinds of circumstances also uh, sort of work against you. Uh, by virtue of Deuteronomy chapter 31, women like men and children could participate in the synagogue services, but there were often barriers that were extracted or created, uh, barriers of lattice that separated the women's section from the men's. So when I was growing up, we had like Prairie Bible Institute and, and they had the women, you know, had pink sidewalks on one side, blue sidewalks on the other, you know, you kept your distance, you didn't talk to one another, there was a pretty strict rule, apparently they had the same thing back there. Uh, even later they had certain galleries for the women with their own separate entrance, and so there was a strict sort of rule or process about keeping them separate from one another. Um, now, to be sure, this was often the rules of sort of you might call the rich and wealthy, those who are really faithful to the process. Realistically, this wasn't true for every family. Uh, in fact, there was times that um, there was individuals who, just by the very nature of economics, a woman had to go out into public and she had to help her husband with his occupation. She basically labored beside him to help, whether it was farming or whatever occupation he happened to have, she just, out of necessity, had to participate in it. Depending on the number of children and sons that they had, whether they could help or not, there, there was a lot of changes. Um, women also were uh, generally excluded from certain kinds of activities within the tabernacle services. Uh, it was not uncommon at times for women to read from the Torah, but it wasn't necessarily something that happened all the time. And so as you begin to track through some of the customs, obviously we're simply touching on some of the periphery and some of the things, but life was hard. There wasn't necessarily a sense of equality that was really powerful. But then Paul and others come along with this message of the gospel that starts to change the whole mindset. Uh, if you didn't realize that, you could go back and listen to the whole three years of Romans and realize that when the... Gentiles started coming to Christ, they got mixed in with Jews who would believe in the gospel, and you've got these Gentiles who had no respect for these kinds of things that the Jews regimentedly kept in terms of their own particular culture. And so you're getting individuals that are mixed into this new community called the church, and they're trying to figure out how they're supposed to live. 
And if you think some of the things around us are difficult to figure out, how do we accommodate one another and how do we make adjustments to respect the different personal convictions, and you, if you think that's hard now, just think of how difficult it would have been back then. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, when the Jerusalem Council came together, they, they had to address issues like this and they actually sent a letter out to a lot of the churches saying, listen, we don't want to put a huge burden on you, but there's a few things that we want you guys to respect between one another uh, you know, food offered idols and that kind of thing and don't eat meat with blood and all that kind of stuff because this is going to be hugely offensive to other people that come from different ethnic backgrounds. And so when the church begins to form, there's this new humanity and this new mode of existence that people have to learn that isn't driven by particular ethnic cultures. And, and so as they begin to struggle through this, you have Paul addressing it from the church in Corinth that probably was exposed a lot more to the things of Rome and the chaos of that particular culture than other churches that, that were in Jerusalem that were very Jewish-centered and, and very ingrained in some of the practices and the customs that they had. But when he comes to this particular text, uh, while we can't deal with all of it, there's some things that are important to note. He begins by talking about and introducing this whole issue of worship by talking about headship which seems kind of strange. He talks about the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, or as some translation, the head of the wife is the husband, and the head of Christ is God. It's actually kind of stated funny because what naturally people do is that when they read this, they jump to Ephesians chapter five or Colossians where it talks about headship and submission between husband and wife, and that gets brought into the discussion because that's the assumption of what we're dealing with. And so then there's this advocacy of, well, the man is in charge and the woman is to submit to the husband and that becomes part of the rhetoric. Now, if, if you're from an egalitarian background, that's all being dismissed for the sake that this is all about culture. This is all just simply speaking into a cultural thing that has no business or, or no relevance to where we live now at all. And so basically, the issue is you can dismiss all of this. But Paul appeals, not to the culture, but he appeals to things related more to what God has done than what the culture speaks to. And yet, in spite of that, it's fairly mixed. So he talks about the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. And so as you begin to struggle through this, he's making an appeal that they ought to conduct themselves even in this new community, but even coming out of the culture, there's certain things he calls them to respect and to honor. And he's pretty forthcoming about it. I mean, he says very clearly that if a man covers his head uh, with a veil of sorts and he worships, he is dishonoring his head because he is the glory and the image of God. Well, that's not a cultural thing, that's, that's a created thing. And then he says that the woman ought to cover her head, which obviously would seem to be very much related to the cultural practices, but the reason she does it is to honor her head, who is the man, because she is the glory of man and he appeals back to creation in order to make that argument. So Paul doesn't help us out a lot here because he starts mixing cultural practices with creation things that God has done and it becomes extremely difficult to figure out what in the world he is getting at. There are basically two ideas to look at headship here. One is the idea that the word headship means source. 
What I mean by that is that if you look down in the text, you'll see that he'll make an argument to say that, well, man wasn't created for woman, woman was created from the man, and she was created for him. So the idea of source means that she simply gets her existence, her life, has been generated when God put Adam to sleep and created woman to be his helper. And so the argument goes that in the same way that that's true, it needs to apply to the other two as well. So when Christ is the head of God, or God is the head of Christ, pardon me, it's not saying that God has authority over Jesus, is the argument, but that, that Christ has his sense of source or life from God. Now that gets into some interesting conversations because, well, was Jesus created? What, what do you mean by that God is the source, uh, the provision of who Jesus is? And so that creates some concern about what he's talking about. If you're Arian, you would basically say that God is the only being and that Jesus at some point was created and that he had, he had a beginning to his existence and he's not eternally dwelt with uh, the Father. So that becomes part of one of the issues that we have to deal with. Uh, the idea of source, probably a way to illustrate it, is uh, if you think about the, the headwaters of the Mississippi, where does the Mississippi actually start? Because when I go down to the river, I see this big mammoth river that's flowing by that's got billions and billions of gallons of water. But it doesn't start that way. If you go to the headwaters, apparently it is at a little place called um, it, uh, Itasca State Park up north. I have to read it because it sounds different to me. Itasca, okay, whatever. Some... <laughs> Some little state park way up north, okay? You know it obviously better than I do. But apparently it's, it's about 18 feet wide, it's knee deep, it's like nothing to brag about. But that's where the headwaters, the source of the Mississippi begins. And then as you follow it along, apparently it goes um, up to Bemidji and then hangs a south route or an east route and heads down through Grand Rapids and so on and so forth. Anyway, the point being, is that the, the source of the, ma, the, the majestic Mississippi that we look at starts as a little tiny river somewhere else. And then as things feed into it, it becomes this massive river that really defines the very nature of the Midwest. And so the idea of headship in this context is saying this is where the, the, the source of things come from. So it's not talking about authority or submission or those kinds of things, but it is simply talking about the source. And it's a pretty strong argument to when you try to look consistently at all the things he talks about. If you start talking about authority, then you have to start dealing with, well, how is God the authority of Christ? Well, that's, that's a viable issue. And we see that in Christ's life that I believe he did submit to the Father. He became a servant and obedient to the Father's will. He didn't come to do his will but the Father's. And so there is a sense that Jesus submitted himself to the authority of the Father to carry out the mission of redemption. It gets a little more tenuous because then when you say, well, if the man is the head of the woman, it, it's hard to see it in terms of just marriage. He seems that... Christ is the head of every man and that woman is submission to him. So now you have to decide, well, does that mean that wives are to be submissive to their husbands? Well, that would be consistent with Ephesians 5. But does that mean that every woman is submissive to every other man just in general as part of the community because God created it that way? Good question. And how you try to answer that then shapes 
what this looks like. Now, if you have a hatred for patriarchy in the sense that man has authority over woman, even in marriage, then this is hard to accept. If you don't think that that defines value and equality, then it's probably not a big deal. So as you begin to think through this, it creates this problem. But as we come back to it, I want you to at least point out one thing that's, I think, pretty obvious in terms of the nature of the text. When he says that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman or the wife is the man or the husband, and the head of Christ is God, it's basically telling us there's an inseparable relationship between these different individuals. That, that they, whether you talk about it as source, in the sense that the woman was taken from man and created, there's an inseparable relationship between these different people. And if there's nothing else to say, it, it would be this. No one has absolute freedom to live their life any way they want. You didn't see that with Jesus, you don't see that with anybody else. And what I mean by that is that we sometimes think that we have absolute freedom to do whatever we want. We live in a ferociously uh, self-driven, independent kind of culture, uh, which is very different than their culture, and we think that our life is our own business and we can live it any way that we want, and even to the extent that we don't care what anybody else thinks, we don't care how it affects anybody else, I'll do what I want, when I want, how I want to do it, as long as I don't visibly see that I'm hurting or damaging someone else, I have the right to do whatever I want. And what Paul clearly says in here is whether he's talking about the man or the woman, because your source of your life isn't your own, you didn't create yourself, if you, you don't uh, have the right in one sense or have absolute control over your life in any way, shape, or form, that the way you live affects other people. And he makes it clear in this text that when he says that, listen, if you're a man, even if he's appealing to something that happened thousands of years earlier at creation, that if the man's head is Christ, then the way he behaves in the community of faith reflects on that headship. And so nobody has the right, if they really understand this new community and their relationship with Christ and the relationship to the community, is nobody has the right to say, I don't care what anybody thinks, I'm gonna do whatever I want, when I want, how I wanna do it, and that's my right to do it. And so he makes it really clear. No one has absolute freedom to do whatever they want. No one has complete independence to do whatever they want that our actions as individuals reflect on others. Now, we would know that in a practical sense. We'll deal with the marriage thing, but if a husband and wife uh, is in this relationship and we affirm the idea of, let's say, headship and submission just on a surface level of what the text says, then what they do reflects on one another. I mean, it might be safer for me to talk about it in terms of kids. When your kids grow up, you hear this conversation all the time. If your kid does something stupid at school, like you know, beats up another kid or gets into detention or whatever kind of thing, and the parents get called to bring them in, then that reflects on the parents. I've heard so many conversations from parents where they're going like, okay, where did we mess up? Where did we screw up that our kids are acting this way? Because the parents feel that the behavior of their kids reflect on who they are. Now, that's probably overdone in lots of situations, but the fact is, is that our actions reflect on other people, and that's what he's saying here. 
Men, if you cover your head and do that, you are dishonoring your head, which I think he's referring to Christ, because you're the glory of God and you need to live in a way that you're not acting shamefully about that. Now, part of the problem for us is that clearly he seems to be saying in your particular culture, you need to act in a way that doesn't dishonor Christ or dishonors God. What that means for us may seem to look very differently. Most commentators would simply say, well, that was a cultural practice. What they do now is reduce it down to, well, you have to have the right attitude. Well, I don't know how you vet that. I mean, they clearly, the women and the men, were supposed to do something clearly visible to demonstrate how they were going to honor their head to just reduce it down to an invisible attitude. It seems a bit of a stretch. How does... And then you get into the conversation, well, should we all be wearing head coverings and what does that look like? And we're not getting into those weeds at all today. But the issue is that no matter how we phrase this, that our actions not only reflect on other people, but they also reflect on Christ and they reflect on God. I think part of his uh, threefold sense of headship means that there's an interrelationship, not just between those individuals, but between God's people and Christ and men and women within the body of Christ. And we can act in a way that dishonors one another and brings shame to the name of Christ by our behavior and our actions and and the way we live out life. And, And Paul is concerned that the way some people, whether it's men or women within this new community, they're acting in a way that's dishonoring to one another and shaming the name of Christ by the way they're behaving. And unfortunately, unfortunately, the culture is part of that. So the question then becomes, what is that supposed to look like? Well, I want to give you a phrase that will be more meaningful next week than it will this week. One of the phrases that I talk about is not only a source, I think, a viable idea in terms of what's happening here, the one that seems to get a lot of pushback is the idea of authority. Or is this all talking about people are accountable to other individuals for their behavior? Well, whether it's directly or implicit, I think that our behavior, as I just mentioned, reflects on the people and upon Christ by the way we act. So there's some kind of relationship and responsibility that's there. But the term that I want to tell you, that I want to at least introduce you today, is the issue of not so much whether I have authority over somebody or whether it's just about source, it's about being under authority. And we will explore this more in details when we talk about it, but I think, uh, I'm, I'm borrowing the phrase a little bit from uh, Matthew when the centurion comes to Jesus, and he says, I've got a sick servant and I would love you to come to my home and heal him, uh, or he, just, he asks Jesus to heal him, and Jesus says, well, let me come to your home, and he goes, I'm not worthy to have you in my home. And then he says something really profound. He says, I too am a man under authority. And I tell soldiers under me to do this and they do it and do that and they do it. And most commentators will read that and say, well, all that really means is that that person has authority and they can do stuff. I disagree with them. I think there's a difference between the mindset that I have power over somebody else, autonomous power, and they're accountable to me, And the fact that if I'm under authority, the only reason I have that authority is that someone above me has given it to me. And I think it's a far better model to think about the, especially when we get into marriage, 
uh, and headship and submission there, to think about the idea of headship much more as I've been entrusted with responsibilities. It's not so much how much authority I have over someone else, but there's someone above me who has entrusted me with responsibilities to other people, and it's not about how much power I can weld or control over them. But in this particular context, it's difficult to flesh all that out. So I'm introducing it to you as a thought, and we'll pick it up next week in terms of what we're dealing with. But the, the, there is a statement here that I want to say that helps sort of say, what's he focusing on? Why, does, why is Paul going to say the woman has to have a sign of authority on her head? Why doesn't he say she ought to have a sign that shows she's submitting to her head? Because in that culture, that was kind of the thing. That was very much the sign of, of knowing her place and what it looks like. So why does Paul not talk about a, a sign on her head that shows that she's submitting to her head rather than having authority? Well, the reason for it is because I want you to notice the statement in verse seven through nine. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. And then he gives two reasons for this. He says, for the man was not made from woman, but woman from the man, which would validate the idea of source. She got her life, her existence, because God put Adam to sleep, tore out a rib, and fashioned it after or into a helper or to, to woman. But then he makes this other statement that often gets ignored, I believe, and that is, neither was the man created for woman, but woman for the man. Now, if you remember our discussion in Genesis chapter two, we discovered that when God did on-the-job training with Adam, he taught him how to subdue uh, the earth, to exercise dominion over the beast by naming the animals, and then God, from that exercise, brings Eve, well, she doesn't get her name actually until chapter three, but brings the woman to him, and God designates her as a helper, which isn't her name, it's not necessarily her nature, she's a woman, she, there's male and female, which describes the nature of who they are, but this idea of being a helper is God's designated role in relationship to Adam. And so when Paul argues this point, he's not only saying, listen, woman gets her life from, the, that's the source part, but God is also, he says, given her a role in relationship to man and she's to be his helper. And because of that, she's the glory of man, and it would take way too long to kind of expound all the nuances of that, but you know, probably the simplest way is, you know, when I married, I know that I married above my pay grade, right? I mean, she's, <laughs> I have no idea how God convinced her to marry me, um, but we all know that when we've married above our pay grade, we've done pretty well, and and if, well, and the other side of it is I know I'm a much better man because of the role of my wife in my life. I mean, there's absolutely no mistake of that. She's been able, God's used her to rub off all the, the real stupid stuff off me, and I am a way different person and much better because of who she is. So there is an element that I think I, I'm going to impose that back to the text to say, I think if woman is the glory of man, there's a reason for it. And it's not just because she's cuter or can carry babies. I think God created her to be a helper in such a way 
that Adam would never be able to carry out the mission that God had for him apart from her presence in that journey because she supplies things that are lacking in him. But the point here is there's two components. He does recognize the fact that she comes from man, that source, but he also points out that she was created for man, which says to me, role and responsibility. And to ignore that, I think, is to ignore the nature of what he's talking about here. Now, so then the question is, what's this statement about a symbol of authority? Well, I wish I could solve your problems. These passages create as much angst for me as it well, maybe it doesn't cut any angst for you because you probably just like blow right over it. But anyway, but the idea in this, I believe, if you're going to translate it literally, he would say because of this, and I believe this are the two things that I just said, because man wasn't created from woman, woman was created for man, and that woman was, man was not created for her, but the woman was created for Adam. Because of those statements... Then he comes and says, because of this, the woman ought to, and the word ought literally has about it the idea of obligation, even to the point of a moral obligation, to have authority, or usually it's translated as the word sign is one that's put into the text because they believe that's what the intent is, is that she has authority on her head, which then becomes, is that, Covering, what does that look like? But the other way to translate it is, because of this, the woman ought, have this obligation or moral obligation, to have authority on account of her head. Now, regardless of what you do with that, I believe here's why Paul makes this statement. Gordon Fee, in his commentary, would say that the most puzzling moment in this entire passage is this word, the Greek word is exousia, it's the idea of authority. It has about this sense of command or authority or power, uh, and it's used in a lot of different situations. But then they push back on the historic idea that the man would have authority over the wife, and by saying this, the difficulty is see why Paul had expressed himself in this extraordinary manner. The authority has been put for a sign of authority is not the difficult part. But, what does, but why does St. Paul say authority when he probably means submission or subjection? Well, I think Paul has two things in mind when he writes this. I think there's two ways to look at it. Uh, the one way is simply this. Why should she have this symbol on authority? I believe it's one is out of re- to recognize and respect her head. The whole conversation is about don't act in a way that dishonors your head. Bring shame to yourself and to the one that who is ahead. So that would be the man or the husband, however you want to wade through that. In other words, her behavior not only reflects on herself, but it affects others. And so, when he, so the idea is, is, I think in that particular culture, wearing a head covering showed Uh, recognize and respect, if you ask Paul, for the way God created things in terms of recognizing and respecting the source of her existence. But the second idea is that this is a sign that gives her authority so that she has the right to freely participate in public worship in this new community. I think that's why he doesn't just pick submission, because it's not just about submission, 
and, and, and end up caving to what the, the culture would do, but it also gives her authority or the right to participate in the body of Christ in that particular culture. Now, what's the problem then? Well, the problem is we're going to see, and if you jump to chapter 14, Paul says the women are to be silent in the churches, which is a whole other bag of worms that you have to figure out, because here it seems like they give them permission to be praying and prophesying, however you want to define the nature of that. So they're given permission here to publicly participate, but they're told they're not allowed to teach, which sounds like the culture speaking, but what does it mean in the new community? One of the things that I think become part of this when she talks about recognizing and respecting her head or her headship is that Paul, the other word this word authority is used in 1 Corinthians, there's two places especially. One is 1 Corinthians 8 talking about food offered to idols, another big cultural thing. And he says, listen, you know you have the right to eat food offered to, in these temples and idols, but not everybody gets that. And so he says, don't allow this right of yours to somehow become a stumbling block to other people. Well, I believe that there's a similar thing going on here is that for women not to wear a head covering or whatever could very well be a stumbling block to other believers who come from a culture that they would be weak regarding that particular issue. And what Paul is saying is to the women, listen, don't use your right and freedom to publicly participate in the community of faith and worship and do it in such a way that stumbles other people around you. you got, because your actions impact and reflect on the people around you. Not just people, but it reflects on Christ and it reflects on God. But the other element of this uh, is in 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul talks about um, sowing spiritual things to people. Is it too much if we reap material things from you? Financial support is what he's talking about. If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Because he was instrumental in them coming to Christ. But he says, we have not made use of this right and we endure everything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. And I think the concern about behaving properly in the community of faith especially for the women, whether they're wearing a head veil or they're getting rid of it because now they have this new freedom, is that the danger is, is that they may have a right to certain things, but it may cause other people to stumble. It may be an obstacle to the gospel in the culture that they're dealing with because they're acting in a way that's so incongruent with the culture that people are just offended before you even have a chance to have the discussion. Keeping up? Yeah, I know. But we also want to make sure in this community of faith, especially in the culture that the Judaisms grew up and, and trying to deal with the Gentiles coming in who have no respect for their customs, that the women have a right to, to participate. They have a right to pray. They have a right to, to prophesy. And I think there's a more generic element of that, but we'll, we'll deal with that like three years down the road. But anyway... But, but the idea is, is they have a right to be involved in the community and to participate. But ladies, as, as, as he's talking to her, and he says the same thing to the men, don't push your luck. <laughs> don't, don't push it so hard that you're becoming a stumbling block to other people and you're becoming an obstacle to the gospel. Let's do things in a way that respects the headship and you recognize that your actions are impact and reflect on other people, including Christ and God. And guys, by the way, you need to make sure you do the same thing. 
And so there's a sense of equality that Paul is talking about, but he's saying, listen, just make sure you know that this isn't just about you. This really is about what Christ is doing in the world, and he's calling you out of a very dysfunctional, broken world. And if you really care about the gospel, sometimes, like Paul, we need to surrender our freedoms and rights in order to be like Jesus as a servant of God, doing his will, not mine, so that the gospel can make a difference in the community. And so the idea here is, and the reason I say this is because I think what Paul's doing is giving her the right to have freedoms that aren't really they're used to. And it sort of gives the impression, you'll notice that the only person who isn't described as having a headship is the woman. The man is the head. You might say, I don't understand what you're saying. The man is the head, Christ is the head, God is the head. The woman's the only one who isn't given the idea of headship. Well, if you adopt my concept, as it were, that I'm saying that headship really means I'm under authority and I have responsibilities, she could easily say, I've got no obligations anyway. I'm free, I can do whatever I want. And God is saying to them, listen, you have responsibilities too, even if it isn't official, so to speak. That whether you're a husband and wife or whether you're single or married or divorced, whatever it happens to be, we need to realize that even what we do here impacts one another and it affects what we do in terms of representing Jesus Christ to one another and the gospel in a lost world. And so life isn't about my freedoms and rights as much as it is how do I invest in this community in such a way that exalts Christ and honors those around me and including Christ and God himself. And so when you get to verse 10, he says, nevertheless, and it literally means in spite of what I've just said about the woman having authority, whether you perceive that as submission or having rights and freedoms to participate, he says, the, uh, in the Lord, the woman is not independent of man. Well, when I read that, I go, they're going to interpret what he just said as maybe the woman has way more independence and freedom than we want to allow her to have. And you're kind of pushing in our face, Paul, to say that she has freedoms and rights that we're not willing to give her. But then he comes back and says, well, listen, in spite of what I just said, remember, the woman isn't independent to do whatever she wants, but neither is the man. And he reaffirms this by saying, as the woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things come from God. So at the heartbeat of all that he's doing, is saying, listen, understand what equality is. And I believe that we have to, in some respects, and I understand the pushback I'll get by say, from saying this, is that let our equality be defined by relationship with Jesus and even the roles and responsibilities he's given to us without start going to war, that those differences mean that we're treating each other unequal. In the heart of what God wants to do with this community is, I think Paul's saying, God wants to use the church at Corinth to impact the world. Don't let your internal behavior become a point of conflict so you're stumbling one another, you're becoming an absolute, and you're so consumed with internal battles that you're not really out there shining the glory of the gospel to people that need to have it. And I'll tell you, I've, uh, in my regional director stuff, I've 
run into a lot of churches that they're so entangled in battling over power issues in the church and who's got authority and who's got responsibility and who gets to control things that they couldn't get a wet cat to accept the gospel if it walked in and asked for repentance. I don't know where that came from. It just... <laughs> but you'll remember it, I'm sure. I mean... God's called us to something greater. And I realize this probably opens up more questions than it solves, but, but the issue becomes God wants us all to live in such a way that we're clearly exalting God, we're living for the sake of the gospel, and we're treating each other in this community as equals in Christ because that's what he's called us to do. We all are going to have different roles and responsibilities, and that we can address as we go. But the heart of it is that God has given this freedom for us to be a community of faith, and one the world desperately needs to see, that we operate differently than our culture, but in a way that exalts Christ and and magnifies the gospel to people who desperately need to see it. Pray with me, if you will. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. You have lavished your grace upon us in ways that if we were truly to understand the full measure of our sinfulness before you, we'd probably break down in tears for hours to consider that your kindness would even give us a second thought. That a holy and perfect and majestic God would consider such broken messed up, evil individuals at times that have rebelled against you and suppressed your truth and become your enemies by the very nature that we love ourselves more than we love you. That my personal rights and freedoms become more important than the people that my rights and freedoms affect. That my behavior doesn't just reflect on me but it deeply impacts the people around me. And I pray that we would live in such a way that we would honor one another and not be a stumbling block. That we would reflect the the value of what you've created in all of us as created in the image of God, redeemed by the shed blood of Christ and children of the living Savior. That we might declare the excellencies of him who shed his blood so that we might be a people called out of a a dark and crumbling culture to be this new community that exalts you. For this we pray in Christ's name, amen.